Heavenly Father, we're thankful we can be here today, Lord. We're thankful for this blessing of campus week. We just pray for this forum today, Lord, that uh, as, as Jen discusses the topic of anxiety with, with these teens, Lord, we just pray that you would open up their hearts and their minds, Lord, to what they're hearing and what they're seeing. We're thankful for each one of them being here at camp, Lord, and we just know that you want to have a relationship with each one of them, Lord. And so we just pray that you would begin that process in those hearts, Lord, that, uh, that need to give their lives to you, and we're thankful for the examples that some of them have set for, for their peers, Lord. We just pray for Jen as she uh, presents this topic, that uh, it would come from you, Lord, and it would uh, come out of love. And we, so we just pray for a blessing on this time now that we have together. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, babe. Before I start, I'm a relational talker. I get kind of out of control because I love to talk. It's one of my talents. God did not give me the ability to discern all the things that come out of my mouth, but I do like to say things. So before I start, I want to see where my own children are. I see Aubrey. Where's Jax? Okay. That, that, in a weird way, that just helps me to, to focus and know who my uh, cheerleaders are. Just kidding. And I thank them for the many hours and hours that they let me prepare this at home. Okay, first of all, we're talking about anxiety. That's why we're here, right? So what is anxiety? Anxiety is a meteor shower of what-ifs. It's a suspicion, an apprehension, a hunch, something that just says something's wrong. Fear, fear sees a threat, but anxiety imagines one. Anxiety can twist us up into emotional pretzels. We suffer from an onslaught of personal challenges. You or someone you know right now is facing foreclosure, fighting cancer, going through a parent's divorce, battling addiction and debt, or failing a class. One might think that Christians are exempt from worry, but we're not. We have been taught that a Christian life is a life of continual peace, and when we don't have that peace, we assume that it's our fault. The result is a downward spiral of worry, guilt, worry, guilt, worry, guilt. This can cause a person to feel anxious. Oh, I guess that should have happened first. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) So, what do you think that the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said, be anxious for nothing? Why not be anxious less or be anxious only on Thursdays? Be anxious on a certain season of life. Why does he say nothing? That gives us no wiggle room at all. What does he mean by that? It's a life of perpetual anxiety, continued anxiety that he's talking about. The presence of anxiety is unavoidable. You're going to graduate, maybe get a job, possibly you'll get married, you'll become parents eventually, possibly. Um, Maybe you even have to confess something to your parents that you aren't really wanting to confess, Aubrey. (laughs) All of those kind of things give you anxiety, but it's the prison of anxiety that's optional. Anxiety is not a sin. It's an emotion. So don't be anxious about feeling anxious. However, anxiety can lead to sinful behavior. We are sinning if we numb our anxieties with alcohol, with food binges, if we speak in anger toward others, or if we're peddling our fears on someone who will buy them. Well, then we're sinning with our anxious hearts. Before going any further, this form is only about anxiety. It is to help you to cope through times of high anxiety through prayer, through God's word, through practical thinking, and through changing our actions. This form is not a form on depression. Although anxiety and depression share a, com- a lot in common, they are still separate. This form is not meant to diagnose anyone with anxiety disorder and definitely not with depression disorder. I'm not talking to everyone here. You are all teens. Half of you are ladies, which means half of you are more dramatic than the other half here. You're at camp with packed schedules of mandatory attendance and running on less than half the sleep that you should be getting. Do not sit here through this form and self-diagnose yourself with anxiety or depression disorder. That being said, 
I am sure that there are, there are many in this audience who truly do need to talk to someone about an anxiety and depression disorder. If you are one of these people, you aren't just thinking now, hmm, am I anxious? Do I have this disorder? Am I, do, am I going through this depression? You know that you need it. There's no question about that. So if you, if you feel as though you are in a losing battle of continued depression or anxiety, the first thing you need to do is discuss it with someone. Friends are great, but please don't forget that they're not experienced as your age, and they're not sure exactly how to handle the problem. And at this point, I do want to say that this is, I want to make this form fun for you because that's how I learned, but I also want to make sure that we're very sensitive to the people to the left and to the right of us. When I talked about writing notes, I do mean that there might be some of you who really do need to write notes right now and be kind and courteous to them not to look at what they're writing. Um, you might have no idea that somebody's suffering through a true problem and they're just holding it in right now. And so just make sure that the chatter is a little bit you know, limited and you're not mocking anything that's being said by it because your friend might need to hear it. Um, it's a great serious burden to tell a friend and then ask them not to tell an adult if they are suffering with someone. We have many people in our churches who are not only godly examples, but they are trained professionals. Most of them work in the field of mental health. They are willing to talk to you. If you feel you need to speak with anyone, your parents are a great start. As well, you can fill out on that exit slip that we all handed to you your contact information, and I will make sure um, the camp advisors have already given us a, a great start of a list of names and phone numbers that I will be able to um, hook you up with them. So if you have any kind of questions, those exit slips will all be passed, uh, will all be collected as you leave. And if you have your name, even email on that, that will be um, anonymous. Nobody will know about it. And I will make sure to get it directed to the people who can call you or email you or whatever preference you'd like. <clears throat> so the rest of this forum is just about anxiety. In Luke 21, 34, we read, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with the anxieties of life. Is your heart weighed down with worry? Look at these signals. Do you see problems in every promise? Would those you know the best describe you as increasingly negative or critical? Do you assume the worst and that something bad is going to happen? Do you dilute and downplay good news with doses of your own version of reality? Do you magnify the negative and dismiss the positive? Given the chance, would you avoid any inter interaction with humanity for the rest of your life? If you've answered yes to most, I am not diagnosing you with anything other than to tell you to read the scripture from Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with understanding, will guard your heart with understanding. Sorry, guys. Maybe I should be looking up there. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through, Jesus, through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, in there is virtue. And if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Did you know that the Bible is the Kindle's most highlighted book and that Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is the most highlighted passage, even more than John 3, 16? Why do you think that is? It's because being anxious is nothing new for anyone, and it's something that happens to all of us. This is where we need to remember that it's not a sin to feel anxious. It's how we handle with those, those anxious thoughts that we, and how we worry with these thoughts that matter. 
Are we including God in our anxious feelings? It is not God's will that you lead a life of perpetual anxiety. It is not his will that you face every day with dread and trepidation. He oversees your world. He monitors your life. Nothing will come your way apart from his permission. This is an acronym, CALM. And this is a way to to learn how to calm your anxiety through these different ways. C, celebrate God's goodness. That's taken from rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4. A, that is ask God for help. Let your requests be made known to God, verse 6. L, leave your concerns with him with thanksgiving, verse 6 also. And M, meditate on good things. Think on these things. Taken again. That one from verse 8. If anyone had a reason to be anxious, it was the Apostle Paul. Beaten, left for dead, imprisoned, and deserted by friends. He endured shipwreck, storms, starvation. Paul also bared the weight of newborn churches and members bickering, false teachers, false prophets, who were, out of, who were all preaching out of pride and envy. Those are all taken from Philippians 1, 15 through 17 tells us that. His, ver- her, his future is gloomy and his jail cell is dark. However, in his letter to the Philippians, he bears not one word of fear or complaint. He never shakes a fist at God. He lifts his thanks to God and calls his readers to do the same. Your anxiety decreases as your understanding of your Heavenly Father increases. The more you share, sorry, the more you stare at a problem, the more it grows. The more that you look at God, the quicker the problem is reduced to its proper size. Anxiety passes as trust increases. Rejoice that he is able to do what you cannot. Fill your mind with thoughts on God. All right, so Hebrews 13, 8. Did that come up? All right, Hebrews 13, 8 tells us, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Psalm 48. I delight to do the will, thy will, O my God, thy laws within my heart. Psalm 102, 27, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Psalm 139, 17, how precious are thy thoughts unto me, O God. The mind cannot be, do the same thing at the same, two things at the same time. It cannot be afraid of fear and then also full of God. You cannot control the circumstances in life, but you can always control how you think of them. A way, of entrusting, or a way of increasing that trust is by worshiping God. And I would challenge you all to take 30 minutes a day, and I know that sounds like so long. Start with maybe even 10 or 15 minutes a day worshiping the Lord in prayer and in praise. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 7. Did nobody want to tell me I dropped one of these pages? Did anyone notice that I was kind of winging that one? Okay, so now that I see where I am, all right. Erwin, you were right. I should have stood up, gone on the bottom there. All right, is there, is there anything that you've ever done that you shouldn't have done? Come on, think about it. Now I'm asking, I'm not asking you guys to share it, but I'm asking you to think of something that you, maybe that didn't make you proud. Have you told a lie, stole, cheated, been mean to a friend? Well, what comes next? Usually it's guilt. And then a harsh consequence of that guilt, depending on what you did, anxiety, that may come next. So here are some different ways that you can use 
that some different ways that we might deal with that anxiousness that we have within us. We may numb it with drugs and alcohol, deny it, pretend it never happened, minimize it, we didn't sin, we just lost our way, bury it, the busier we stay, the less time we spend thinking about it, punish it, hurt ourselves, give ourselves more rules, avoid, avoid the mention of it, don't tell family or friends, keep it on the surface. Redirect it, lash out, yell at friends or family. Offset it, I'll never make a mistake like that again. I'll try to be perfect. And the last one here, embody it. I didn't mess up, I am a mess up. I didn't do bad, I am bad. Unresolved guilt will never turn you into, unresolved guilt will turn you into a miserable, angry, stressed out mess. The Apostle Paul clung to this grace that has been given by Christ. Guilt sucks the life out of our souls, but grace restores it. Grace frenzies, guilt frenzies the soul, but grace calms it. To the same degree that he believed in God's sovereignty, he relied on God's mercy. No one had ever had any more reason to be more, bur- hold that burden of guilt than Paul. He orchestrated the death of so many Christians, he was a terrorist of his times. Acts 8.3 tells us that Paul was like a wild man, going everywhere, devastating the believers. He entered private homes and dragged out even women and jailed them. He was legalistic to the core. Before he knew Christ, Paul had spent a time trying to save himself. His salvation depended on his perfection and his performance. In Philippians 3, 4, and 6, Paul even tells us of his hate crimes. However, after seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul couldn't see the value of his resume anymore and all the reasons that he had to boast about what he had done to the Christians. In Philippians 3, 7, he tells us that all the things he thought were worthwhile, he threw them away so that he can put his trust and hope in Christ alone. In exchange for self-salvation, prior to him knowing God, Paul put his, his own salvation within his own righteousness. Philippians 3, 9 says, Now I am right with God, but because I followed the law, not, sorry, for I am righteous in Christ, not because I followed the law, but because I believed in Christ. It's the mercy, the Lord's mercy, that has been revealed to Paul. Paul gave his guilt to Jesus, period. He didn't numb it, deny it, minimize it, or any of those other things from that list. In Philippians 3.13, Paul tells us that he isn't all that he should be and that he's forgetting the past and reaching to the things before him. And in 14, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize, the higher calling of Jesus Christ. God's grace is bigger than any sin. What would I say to a a guilt-bearing teenager? Rejoice in the Lord's mercy. Trust in his ability to forgive. Abandon any temptation of self-justification or self-salvation. No more hiding behind those fig trees. You cast your care upon the grace of Christ alone. I want you to imagine for a second, and this is um, for anybody even under the age of 16, that you're driving, you're in a driver's seat. You get to drive even if you're 13 here. The picture being in the your picture that you're in the driver's seat and you're looking out towards the little rearview mirror there. It's really small. There's a reason that the windshield is bigger than that rearview mirror. Your future or the windshield ahead of you. That's what matters the most. It matters more than your past or that little rearview mirror than what's beside you or what's behind you. God's grace, it's greater than your sin and anything from your past.
Anybody know what that's from? You don't have to tell me, but I'm, I'm sure some of you recognize that one. There's a reason for that. In one of Henry Noonan's books, he tells about the lesson of trust. He learned from a family, he learned this lesson of trust from a trapeze artist known as the Flying Rodleys. He visited them for the first time and watched them fly through the air with elegant poise. When he asked one of the flyers, the secret of trapeze artist, the acrobat gave this reply. The secret is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, Joe my catcher, I have simply to stretch out my arms and, and my hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the, the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them or he might break mine and I, it would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly, and the catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms, and his catcher will be there for him. As far as salvation, God is the catcher, and we are the flyers. We rely solely upon Christ's ability to catch us. Your Father God has never dropped anyone, and he will not drop you. His grip is steady, and his arms are open. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto the, his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Barb, I can't see my PowerPoint on there. That's why I keep turning back. Uh, it's fine to turn back, but just to let you know. All right, so the three C's are, um, are still up there each time. There's re rejoicing. It's celebrate God's, God's goodness. Rejoice in the Lord's mercy, his sovereignty, and, his, um, and rejoice in the Lord always. So we're on this part here. I feel for this forum that if I'm going to ask you to confess anything to adults, if you're struggling with anything or, or another Christian friend, then I should be real as well. By talking about our anxiety, it helps us to be open and know others are there to help us. It might sound silly, but one of my greatest anxieties is something that I love very much. The week is camp, of camp is very hard for me. Ever since I was little, maybe four, I have been afraid of the night, not the dark, but the night. I remember my room closest to the door. I lived in California. We were on a ranch. And it freaked me out. Uh, my room was closest to the front door. And that meant that I would be the first one kidnapped at night, right? It consumed me. And I couldn't break away from that fear. However, when I was about eight, we moved to Ohio. And we moved into a new house. And thank God the bedrooms were upstairs. And my brother's room were closest to the stairs. So they would be the first one to be kidnapped. So that was perfect. Crazy enough, that thought really did comfort me. So I had a brother who was a sleepwalker. It scared me to think that he would be waking up and walking around. It didn't take me be long before I started locking my door at night. I hated the thought that somebody could be walking around at night. I thought of him waking me up in the middle of the night, and it terrified me. Not that he'd hurt me or anything, but just seeing somebody, somebody's face in front of me. This anxiety carried into my parenting. As soon as my children could walk, we trained them that, it was, that if they had a problem at night, they needed to wake Daddy up first. I will help my children with anything they need in the middle of the night, but they just can't wake me up first. Mike would get them, listen to their problem, and by the time I heard some talking, I would spring into action. But my fear of night, starting at age four, still haunted me, and it would relive, I would relive these experiences over and over when my children would come into my room with their faces staring in front of me. So I, I would, um, I'd lie in my bed and open my eyes every few minutes um, before we had this idea of them going to Mike first, and I would say, um, who is that? Do I hear somebody walking or in the bathroom? Does someone throw up? Uh, does somebody need something? Are they calling out for me? So that's when that idea came to calmly talk to me 
um, or calmly come in or talk to Mike, even if it's not calmly. I don't care if they scared him in a terror. I just didn't want to be the one that was woken up. So when Mike and I would stay at a hotel or family or friend's house, or you better believe it here at camp, guess who sleeps closer to the door? I do not. Why? Well, because an intruder obviously would get him first. I would wake up then, then I'd realize, oh, something's wrong, it's happening. And that's just a, a fear that I've, I've always had. Um, when, it, when we stay away from home, it takes me a while to sleep. I think of things like, what's the best fire, fire escape? Which rooms do I go to first if there's a fire? Which kids do I carry out now that they're a little bit older? Which kids do I make walk out? Should I call 911 while walking out of the building or get out of the building first? These thoughts consume me when I'm away from home. Here at camp, I have these thoughts and other thoughts too. If my ringer is off and there's an emergency, will Aubrey or Jax know how to get a hold of me? Well, then again, if I have my ringer on and someone accidentally calls or my cousin from California forgets that there's a later time zone here and she texts me, will I wake everyone in my room up? I'm in a pod this year for the first time at camp and my kids need, if my kids need to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, will everybody wake up when that hall light goes off? If Mike started to snore and I heard him, will Erwin and Emily wake up who are sleeping right next to us in our pod? Before I know it, it's 4 a.m. and my mind is still thinking. Then it's, did I iron Maddox's shirt? I didn't try Axel's shorts on before we left for our trip. Should I iron them now? Should I wake Axel up to even try them on at 4 in the morning? This part is seriously how, how my brain works at night. And I'm already letting you know, boys, that since it's Jax's first time dorming, if there's any hazing or hurtful pranks done to him, or rather any camper, I will be the first one at your door at four in the morning. Why? Because I'm already awake in Cedarwood planning every single prank that you can do all to each other. Because that's how my anxious mind works. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. So some anxious thoughts cannot be helped and may require, and may ne- I, you may never escape them, just like my nights away from home. But we need to learn how to handle them without fear taking over. Perpetual anxiety is the mental alarm, alarm system that never quite turns off. By the way, I prayed for my forum today and I was able to sleep soundly. But isn't it interestingly enough, do you know what time the Lord woke me up? 4 a.m. I was up this morning. I just thought that was neat. I just picked some number. Well, it wasn't neat for me because I... I didn't have that sleep so soundly, but 4 a.m. I was up today thinking. But it's what we do. It's what we do with that perpetual anxiety and trying to, anxiety is good. It's kind of like an alarm system saying something's wrong. It's what I've dealt with since I was four years old at night in my room, being the first one closest to the door and the window, ready to open at any moments without anybody even knowing I was missing. That is perpetual anxiety. Limited anxiety is helpful. We need to be alerted to danger. We don't need to live in a state of high alert. It's balancing those out that's important. Fear tells me there may be a problem at night that I may enc- might encounter. Anxiety tells all of them, with th- anxiety lists all of them with three different scenarios for each way that, that I think something could plan out. The Apostle Paul urges us to rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4, 4. not only on paydays, on Fridays, on good days, on days when my kids' shirts are ironed, and I know that Axel's shorts fit, but in all days rejoice in the Lord. But what about Joseph? He was imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit, abandoned, disliked, and sold by his brothers, but he was a model prisoner. He later tells his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what now, 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. Genesis 50, 20 to 21. Joseph uses two powerful words. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph's brothers had every intention to harm him, but God, in his providence, used their intended evil for his ultimate good. He did not allow their sin to rule the day. God uses all things to bring about his purpose. Joseph viewed his sufferings of his life through the lens of God's plan. I urge you to do the same. If you don't, anxiety could stalk you every day of your life. The cancer is back but God still occupies the throne. Your boss fired you for no good reason at work, but God is still sovereign. You are an anxious, troubled soul, but God has been giving, giving me courage each day. You were really mean to your sibling, but God showed you how to ask forgiveness. Or for me, I can prepare for the next day. I can bolt down my four-year-old's window, or I can lock my 10-year-old's door, but God still has a plan for tomorrow, no matter what my brain says at night. Some nights are hard for me to fall asleep, and I can't stop thinking, but God promised me his mercies are new every morning. I'm sorry for the pain that your life may have given you. I'm sorry if your parents may have neglected you. I'm sorry if your teachers ignored you. Or if your spouse one day who said, I do, and then years later may say, I don't. I'm sorry if you were inappropriately touched or if you were intentionally mocked. I'm sorry if you ended, your, ended up in your own prison like Joseph. But we all have a choice. We wear our hurt or wear our hope. We can outfit ourselves in our misfortune or we can clothe ourselves in God's protection. We can cave or we can lean into God's perfect plan. Romans 8.28, most of you know it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Do not assume God is not watching. He's not watching for it from a distance. He's watching close by. Avoid that quicksand that tells you that God has left you. Don't indulge that lie. If you do, your problem will amplify by the sense of loneliness. It's one thing to face a challenge, but it's another one to face it alone. Isolation creates a downward cycle of fear. Choose instead to be a person who clutches to the presence of God with both hands. Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? It's that reason that I can eventually close my eyes here at camp and sleep. I know I'm not alone, and I know God hears my thoughts and requests. My brain just handles it maybe a little bit differently than yours. But either way, I know my God is near, and that he will calm my anxious mind in his time. So this is ask God for help, and the L, or the A in calm is ask God for help. Let your request be made known to God. God said, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. I will deliver you, Psalm 50, 15. Jesus said, ask, and, I will give, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open unto you. Matthew 7, 7. So when anxiety knocks on your door, just remember to say, Jesus, would you mind answering that? If you don't already keep a prayer journal, it would be a great time to start one. Begin with today's prayer requests that you have. This is a reassuring lesson from the miracle of the bread and fish. Jesus told his anxious disciples to feed 5,000 people. Imagine a crowd of 5,000. Jesus is willing to feed them all. Yet his disciples, on the other hand, wanted to get rid of all of them and go have them buy their own food. They say to Jesus in Matthew 14, 15, send the multitude away that they may go into the villages 
and buy their own food. We see a ton of aggravation and even frustration. They don't ask Jesus to help. Instead, they try to run from the problem. Here is Jesus, who they have already seen. Heal leprosy, and all the Bible verses are on this, most, most from Matthew 8 and 9, and then you get into Mark and John a little bit too, but they've already seen him heal leprosy, heal the centurion's, heal the centurion's servant without going to the servant's bedside, heal Peter's mother-in-law, calm a violent storm, heal a paralytic, heal a woman who had been sick for 12 years, raise a girl from the dead, drive out an evil spirit, heal a demon-possessed man in a cemetery, change water into wine, and heal a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And yet they don't ask him, thinking that he can't provide for all of these people. Did any of these disciples think long enough to even ask Jesus for help? The stunning answer is no. They acted as if Jesus weren't even present. Rather than count on Christ, they had the audacity to tell the creator of the world that nothing could be done and there wasn't enough money. Jesus fed them all, and not one coin was even spent. You aren't facing a problem like feeding 5,000, although EMU does have a problem with feeding all of us ice cream here at camp. We'll see if they have enough. They might need to be calling on Jesus for a miracle. But you may be facing a deadline, a loved one in need of a cure, being bullied. Maybe you have a sibling who's out of control, a parent who lost their love for your family, money issues, temptations. Before you decide that it's impossible just like the disciples did. Ask Jesus to help you face the impossible. Before you lash out in fear, look up to faith. Take a moment to turn to your Heavenly Father for help. A raise of hands. Anybody like that? Oh, I thought a little bit more, but okay. So in my house, we love pickles. My seven-year-old Axel loves pickles. We had bought a jar of pickles, and he was determined to open it for himself. And after failing to do so, he asked his father for help. Of course Mike was willing and able to help him open the jar of pickles. But think of this, if Axel wouldn't have asked his father for help, he'd just be staring at the problem and definitely not enjoying the delicious pickles. This business of anxiety management is hard. It's like opening up a jar of pickles. Some worries are locked inside and extracting them is hard work. In fact, that may be the toughest challenge of all. But you don't have to do it alone. Present this challenge to your father and ask for help. Will he solve the issue? He will. Will he solve it immediately? Maybe not, but that might be a plan, of course, for our patients. How do we ask God for help? By prayer. God doesn't delay. He never places you on hold or tells you to call again later. God loves the sound of your voice, and for that reason, we are anxious for nothing. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we let our, our requests be known. The Apostle Paul is calling us to take action against our anxiety. We don't make demands. We simply offer, offer humble requests. In Luke 18, 41, it says, when Jesus was, was talking to the blind man, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't the answer obvious? He's blind. The blind man isn't going to say, I want to be a faster runner, or I'd like to learn more about being a good sheep herder. Yet Jesus wanted to hear the man articulate his specific requests. He wants the same from us. Let your request be made known to God. When the wedding wine ran low, Mary wasn't content to just say, hey, Jesus, help us. She was specific. They have no wine. John 2, 3. They have no wine. The needy man in Luke eleven five didn't just say, feed me. He said, friend, lend me three loaves. There are different ways that we, different reasons why having a specific prayer would be important. Number one, specific prayer is a serious prayer. Here's an example. Let's say one of my friends needs help with depression. 
I don't know it yet, but they need help with depression and would like to talk to me. Tell me which one of these phone calls sounds more sincere and shows me that there's a real problem. Hi, hi, Jenna. Can I come over sometime to talk? Or, hi, Jen. Can I come over this Friday night? I have a problem and I really need to talk to you. I really need your advice. I can be there at 7, and I know you're really busy. I promise I'll leave by 8. Okay, Erwin or Emily? Come on, you guys. I'm not saying, I'm not saying which one do you want to lead to the, your next, your Friday night forum or whatever forum that is, Thursday. I'm saying, obviously, it's Emily. Okay, it was more, more, more serious. Number two, I know it was a shocker. I reversed their roles. Specific prayer is an opportunity for us to see God at work. When we see him on work in specific ways, our faith grows. Here's an example. In Genesis 24, 12, the prayer of Abraham's servant to find a wife for Abraham's son. He says in his prayer, I am standing here beside this spring, and the young women of the town are walking out to draw water. This is my request. I will ask one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. If she says, yes, have a drink, and I will, get, feed your, I will give drink to your camels too, let her be the one that you have selected to be Isaac's wife. This is how I will know that you have shown unfailing love to my master. The servant was able to see God at work by his specific prayer request. The next one, specific prayer creates a lighter load. Many of our anxieties can be brought down to size if we just define them. Here's an example. I'm going to set you up with two different prayers that I may have said this morning. Lord, please bless my form. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if that were my morning prayer, that's one. The next one could be, Lord, the teen form is, okay, it would have been my yesterday one because I wrote tomorrow morning. So, Lord, the teen form is tomorrow morning and it will be early. I'm not a morning person. I will struggle to fall asleep, seeing that you know I'll be planning how to get everybody out of this dorm when there's a fire. Would you please grant me a spirit of peace so I can sleep well tonight? Grant me wisdom to be prepared and on time. Help these teenagers not to yawn too much because then I'll feel like I'm way over their heads and boring them. Above all, Lord, help anyone struggling with anxious thoughts to come boldly to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm not going to ask you which one you think is more detailed this time, Luke. God is not manipulated or impressed by our formulas or elegant words in our prayers. I'm not a, a theologian. I don't have a scholar mind. But he knows, he knows my words, the ones that I know that are limited in my language, and he understands it. There's no secret code when praying. We honor him when we tell him exactly what we need. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all your care or anxiety on him. Why does Peter use the word cast when saying to cast your cares? Casting is an intentional act to relocate an object. On Palm Sunday, the disciples cast their garments onto a colt. Fishermen cast their rod to catch a fish. As you sense anxiety welling up inside of you, cast it to the direction of Christ. Do that specifically and immediately. So Jax was blessed with a, a math brain. He was in a ninth grade class. I didn't know I was going to talk about you. He was in a ninth grade class, um, algebra class, as a seventh grader. But before he started this class, I was a little bit nervous. I wanted to talk to his teacher, and his teacher assured us that this is exactly where he should be, and that if he had any problem at all throughout the whole year, that Jax could come to her with help. The times that he was stuck on a problem, he would go to her sixth period planning, planning time and get help from her in her room. He still had the problem, mind you. The problem didn't just go away because he didn't know how to solve it. 
but he went to the teacher to ask for help. We have to do the same with our problems. We will still have our problems, but we need to ask our teacher, in this case Christ, to help us with the problem. Let him take charge. Let God do what he is so willing to do. At the end of the day, review the concerns that you have with God, maybe in that prayer journal that you had written down, and thank him for all of your blessings. Do you guys know what the biggest river... Whoa, that's prettier than it was at home on my computer. Do you guys know what the biggest river is in the world? There now. It's not the Nile or the Amazon or the Mississippi. It's called the If Only River. Thousands of people stand on their on its banks, and they want to cross it, but they just aren't brave enough to. They are convinced that if the If Only River separates them from having a better life, then then how could they even get there? It would be in a, it would be unattainable. If only I were thinner, I'd have a better life. If only I had money, I'd have a better life. If only I could get married or have a job or move away or be smarter or have clear skin or have more friends, I'd have a better life. The if only river, are you standing on its shore? Does it seem like the better life is is one if only away, one purchase away, one wardrobe away, one friend away? If so, then you've traced your anxiety back to one of its sources. You're in a hurry to cross over to this, this river, and you're so worried that you never will. Consequently, you may borrow money or take on new projects or pile on more responsibility, hang out with people you don't even like just to be in a certain group. The better life begins not when circumstances change, but when our attitude toward them does. All right, confession number two. I've told you one thing to get to know me a little bit better. Here's the next one. I was on youth choir at the age of 14. I was in Richmond, Virginia, which is the first and only time I've ever been to that church. I was in line for dinner, and a friend of mine had asked me how my day was going. I told him, oh, not great at all. I have 14 things wrong today, and I can tell you all of them are ruining my day. I wasn't feeling well. My stomach hurt. My head hurt. I was counting them all. He looked at me and said, well, can you name one thing that God has blessed you with today? I said, oh, yeah. His reply is one that I still remember today. Then focus on what God is blessing you with and give thanks. And in that, he smiled and got into the food line. I wasn't yet baptized, but I was a Christian at this point. He was a baptized believer in one of our churches. I remember as soon as I said it, I not only felt guilty, but I felt humbled. I had not only let my woes ruin my entire day, but I tried to get him on my side to show me some sympathy. Even now in my late 30s, when I start complaining too much, I honestly can tell you, my brain goes back to that Richmond, Virginia church in that food line for a youth choir, and I am, I am being asked by a 17-year-old, can you name at least one thing that God has blessed you with today, Jen? Focus on it and give thanks. Sprinkles among our help me, God, and please, please give me and show me prayers. Need to be thank you. Gratitude is the greatest virtues. <coughs> Excuse me. Studies have linked the emotion of a variety of positive effects. Grateful people are more empathetic and forgiving of others. Gratitude improves self-esteem and enhances relationships. Gratitude leads leads us off of the riverbank of the if-only and escorts us into the fertile valley of contentment. Look at your blessings. Do you see your friends, families? Do you see the grace of God, the love of God? Do you see the gifts and talents you've been given, skills that you've been blessed with? Then give thanks. Now, I put this in two different versions. I do have the King James version up there. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, but I do have the King James up there. I'm just doing this because sometimes you can understand a little bit more. Feel free to read the left side. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I have learned to be content with whatever the circumstance. I know that it is, it is to, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I've learned the secret of life and being content in every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Make sure your happiness does not depend on what you drive or what you spray on, what you deposit into your bank account or what you wear. You cannot win that way. There will always be a newer car or a better dress. And since the race is unwinnable, you are setting yourself up for anxiety. Paul focused on a different list. He had eternal he had eternal life. He had the love of God. He had forgiveness of sins, and he had a certainty of salvation. He had Christ, and Christ was enough. What he had in Christ was far greater than what he didn't have in life. Within its 104 verses, Paul mentions Jesus 40 times. His only aim was to know Jesus. Riches didn't attract him, and applause didn't matter. They, the grave did not intimidate him. Christ-based contentment turns us into strong people. Can death take away our joy? No. Can failure, betrayal, sickness? No. Can disappointment take away our, our joy? No. Though our plans may not work out, we know God's plan will. What you have in Christ is far greater than anything you don't have in life. So back to this If Only River. Where are you? Are you rocking back and forth? Anchor your heart to the character of God. Moods will come and go. Situations will fluctuate. But will you be left adrift? Not if you found a contentment that endures the storms. Replace your if only with already. Look at what you have. Treat each anxious thought with a grateful one and prepare yourself for a new day of joy. Probably 17 years ago, our, our vacuum wasn't working right. We had been married for about three years. We tried to fix it on our own, but we had no success. So we brought it over to our friend Dan Ierly's store. He repairs vacuums, and he knows everything there could know to fixing it. So we told Dan our problem, and then we left. We left him with our problem. What we didn't do, we didn't offer to stay there and help Dan fix it. We didn't hover next to the workstation asking questions about the progress. We certainly didn't throw our sleeping bags on the floor of his shop and watch him repair and do every move. If we did any of these things, it would be a relationship of client, us, and repairman, Dan. The arrangement is uncomplicated. Leave the problem, and he works it to fix it. Our protocol with God is the same. Leave your problem with him. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day, 2 Timothy 1.12. God doesn't need our help, our counsel, our assistance. Oh, and by the way, Dan did fix our vacuum, but it's a very embarrassing story. If you want to hear it, come talk to me, and I will tell you off the record, which means not recorded. I failed to mention, because I think one more is coming up. If you do find a typo, there's two typos that I have in here, and if you find or have found one and you seek me, it it's, will never be on Scripture, or if it is, I want to know. Hopefully I didn't misquote any Scripture on there. It's not on Scripture, but if you find it on a slide, let me know sometime during this week. Come up to me, tell me where you saw it, and I will give you gum or candy. I have it in my bag. So keep looking at that. All right, so this one, the M, the M, meditate on good things. Think about the things that are good and worthy of praise from verse 8. You didn't select your birthplace or your birth date. You didn't choose your parents or your siblings. You don't determine the weather or the amount of salt in the ocean. There are many things 
in life over which you have no choice. But the greatest activity of life is well within your dominion. You can choose what to think about. You can be the air traffic controller of your mental airport. You can occupy the control tower and can direct the mental traffic to your world. Do you want to guarantee tomorrow's misery? Then wallow in the mental mud pit of self-pity like I did in Richmond on Youth Choir. If you assume, assume the worst, beat yourself up, rehearse your regrets, or complain to complainers, then those thoughts have consequences. So how do we disarm anxiety? We stockpile our mind with thoughts of God. Taken from eight, John 8, 31, 32 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If there is a block of time you can claim for God, find it. Before getting out of bed, maybe lunch break after dinner, praying the scriptures helps to learn them well. In our living room, we have wall art, the picture of ravens, and there's a Bible verse with it. It's taken from Luke 12, 24. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest. They don't have storerooms or barns, but God feeds them, and you are both much more than birds. Until this very forum, Mike was probably the only person who knows why that wall art was up on our living, in our living room. It was, to mind me, it was to remind me that God is bigger than my anxious mind. It has been read and prayed over many times when I was struggling, so I decided I wanted it in my home. This verse reminds me that my, ang and my anxiety holds no place, because if even the birds, who don't have to worry about fire escapes at night, and if Irwin's hearing some snoring at camp, and whose, whose things are ironed, even if the birds, who don't have to worry about anything, can trust about God, why would I worry? They're not worried about where their food comes from. They're not worried about the storms that are coming. The devil is always messing with our minds. He will lead you to believe that a sun, he will lead you to a sunless place and leave you there. He seeks to convince you that this world has no window and no possibility of light. Exaggerated, overstated, inflated, irrational thoughts are the devil's specialty. No one will ever love me. It's all over. Everyone is against me. I'll never lose weight. I'll never get out of debt. I'll never have friends. But no matter what, the devil is not the master of your mind. You have the power, and you can defeat him. You have God on your side. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be virtue in any of these, there be... and if." Sorry, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Turns out that the most valuable weapon against anxiety weighs less than three pounds and sits between our ears. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? It's our brain. Here's how it works. You receive a call from the doctor's office. Uh, hi, Jen. The doctor has reviewed your tests and would like you to come into the office for a consultation. Well, I've got to remember Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety weighs down the human heart. Anxiety says, I'm in trouble. Why does God always let bad things happen to me? Am I being punished? I must have done something wrong. These things never turn out right. My family has a history of tragedy. It's my turn. I probably have cancer. Or maybe I'm going blind. My eyes have been blurry lately, and I have this red thing underneath my eye, and I don't know what it is. Who will raise my kids? Who will pay the medical bills? I'm too young for this. No one can understand or help me. The better way says, okay, the better way says, before I call my mom, my spouse, even talk to Mike about it, I will call on God. I will invite him to speak the problem. Remembering 2 Corinthians 10, 5, 
capture every thought and make it give up and obey Christ. I will march it before the one who has authority, Jesus Christ. Jesus, this anxious negative thought has wormed its way into my mind. Is it from you? No. Get away from me, Satan. As the air traffic controller of my mind, I will refuse to let this thought have the time of day. Give Satan lies no welcome. Resist, to ur- resist the urge to exaggerate, over it, overstate, or amplify. The fact is, this news, it'll be good or, the, or bad. And for all I know, they may be calling me to be the poster child of good health. All you have to do is pray and trust. So which is it? Is it the anxious way or the better way? What do you choose? Six years ago, we thought that we lost our three-year-old son, Maddox, in a drowning accident. After his earthly father rescued him from the bottom of the pool, it was time for his heavenly father to rescue him. I knelt by his side. I wasn't much help to those who were performing CPR. I left it up to them because they jumped into action first and they knew what to do. However, the pool that was once full of children was now empty. I was empty. I knew he was dead because he was lifeless and blue. He had no pulse. I looked at my, to my left, and at the other side of the pool was one person. And another image ingrained in my mind is that person there, my eyes fixed on her. While I heard shouts of, come on, Maddox, come on, Maddox, from my husband, my eyes told me that he was gone. My mind told me that he was gone, but my eyes saw my friend Cheryl yawn. My eyes couldn't move from what I was looking at because she was praying. It felt like just minutes of staring at her before I realized It was God using Cheryl to show me, Jen, make your requests known to me. Say it. Say it now and tell me what you need. I see Maddox. I know what your needs are. I know you want him to live again, but I want you to talk to me. And it was there by the pool that I was realizing I needed to be talking to God, not worrying about his condition when somebody else handled it. The problem was being handled as best as it could be. Although I I don't know if the three performing CPR and Maddox would remember, I did start praying. I literally focused my eyes right at Cheryl. I stared right at her at the other end of the pool because because she had her eyes closed, her head bowed, and her hands clasped together that I, I have no doubt was the tightest grip at that point. Nina took my hand and put it under Maddox's neck and I to keep his airways open. That was my only job. I kept my right hand under his head I looked over at Cheryl, who was praying to our Heavenly Father, and I I started to thank the Lord for Maddox and thank him for the blessing that he was the three years we had him. I remember thanking God that someone even thought to call 911 because in that moment, never even crossed my mind, truly. I remember praying out loud to God to save my son. I remember praying for the other children who had endured this trauma, which many of you are here today. Then I remember the words of the first doctor we met in the Windsor Hospital, as I arrived at Maddox's bedside, I was telling Maddox when I got there, because they wouldn't let us ride in the ambulance with him, I said, it's okay, Maddox, Mommy's here. And the doctor said, Mom, we don't know if he can hear you. For those who don't know our family well, Maddox did survive. He's here with us. Praise the Lord. He's a healthy nine-year-old. It was a terrifying experience that has shaped my prayer life. Back home, my friend Ashley contacted a lot of my close friends that very night as soon as she found out about the accident. Within hours, they were gathered. They were from all different churches and some who don't even know the Lord. They gathered together to pray. They didn't all know each other. And in fact, one became closer to the Lord even through that prayer night. Ashley knew a few friends who I know and someone else knew a few. And it kind of just um, snowballed. 
They have told me the account of that prayer meeting where they literally prayed for hours. They started their prayer with thanksgiving, which I thought was interesting when I heard that account because up until that moment, I thought, how could you be thankful for something so tragic at that moment? But they thanked God for he is good and his love endures forever. They started their prayer with fear and anxiety and they, they held, they each, the, each one has told me that by the time that they ended their prayer time, they had full peace that he would make a recovery and that God was listening to their petitions. It's a moment that I honestly wish that I could have been a part of now that I hear of all of my friends who have told me about the accident and the reason that their prior, prayer life has now changed. It was during my greatest distress when I felt the Lord's presence poured upon me, and it was in these heartbreaking moments I trusted, I learned to trust, that God who provided unimaginable strength during pain. It's the same strength that comes over a widow during a time of a husband's burial. She can't explain it, but she just knows God is providing the strength. I don't wish that your three-year-old would ever be found at the bottom of a pool. However, my prayer for you is that you are holding the Lord's hand through all of your days, because you never know if there will be an emergency prayer meeting called on your behalf. When a father leads his four-year-old down the street, it's a crowded street, he takes him by the hand and he says, hold my hand. You hear it a lot here at camp. They don't say, oh, memorize the map, take your chances dodging the traffic, or let's see if you can find your way home, son. The good father gives one responsibility, and that is to hold my hand. Just the same, your goal is not to know every single thing about your future or to be anxious and live in this fear. Your goal is to hold the hand of the one who does know the future and to never let it go. How much time do I have? I have one more thing to say. Okay, so we're doing all right. Peace. The path to peace is paved in prayer. Five verses that lead to one wonderful promise in verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard or keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Before I continue on this last one, if you have not filled out your exit slip, please do so if, if you can. If you have something to say on that, this would be a good time. I can also hold you here for a little bit if you prefer, because we're a little bit ahead of schedule. Do it quietly, please. When mariners describe a tempest that no sailor can escape... They call it a perfect storm. All the elements like hurricane force winds plus a cold front plus a downpour of rain work together to create this insurmountable disaster, the recipe for a perfect storm. All you need for your own perfect storm is a friend's rejection plus being let go on your job or failing school plus your parents telling you now that you're going to move across the country or a close friend's parent dies plus you have just found out that you didn't make the team that you practiced for all summer. We can handle one challenge, but two, three, that's one wave after another. As we do our part, we rejoice in the Lord, we pursue a gentle spirit, we pray about everything and cling to gratitude. God does his part. He gives us the peace of God. Listen to Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This kind of peace is not a human achievement, it is, but it's a gift. It's when we should be worried about all these perfect disasters, but we aren't. It's me at the side of the pool with Maddox where God calmed that perfect storm. We should be upset, but we're calm. We should lash out, but we are comforted. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Is fear coming to you from all sides? 
then let God speak to you. Let God give you what he gave the sailors in Acts 27. The components of a perfect storm are gathered for these sailors, a winter sea, a ferocious wind, a cumbersome boat, and an impatient crew. In this perfect storm, Paul chastised these sailors for not listening to him in the first place. And he tells them in verses 21 and 22 that there will be no loss of life, only damage to the ship. Can you imagine how comforted they felt then? God gave them a perfect peace in the same time they were experiencing a perfect storm. We don't like to be rebuked or corrected as Paul did to the sailors, but when we ignore God's warnings, a scolding as such is in order. Are you maybe in a perfect are you maybe in a storm of anxiety because you didn't listen to God? He told you that sex outside of marriage would result in chaos, but you didn't listen. He told you that the borrower is a slave to the lender, but you took on a dangerous debt. He cautioned you about the wrong crowd and that strong drink or working all of those long hours, but you didn't listen. And now maybe you are, maybe not now, but maybe even years later, and you're remembering the perfect storm, that that's what I'm in. I'm in a perfect storm. Because you belong to him, you have peace in the midst of that storm. The same Jesus who sent the angel to Paul sends you this message. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Isaiah 43, 2. Some days I feel that that is Maddox's very own Bible verse, like God created for him. He knows it. When he hears it preached at home, when he hears it on the radio, if he ever hears that verse, he knows that that is his verse. When I walk, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And that's the same for you. I feel like, like the Lord was saying, Maddox, when you, on August 7, 2012, pass through the waters at the Beckett's pool, I will be with you. Have no fear. So during your storm, stand corrected, learn your lesson, confess your sin, and resolve to do what's right. Admit your weakness and repent. With thankfulness, add God. With thankfulness, ask God to pull you out of that perfect storm with his peace and expect to see God fight for you. You may be facing the perfect storm, but Jesus offers the perfect peace. You'll reframe the way you face your fears if you can remember calm. C, celebrate God's goodness. A, ask for help. L, leave your concerns with him. And M, meditate on good things. A new day awaits you, my friends, a new season in which you worry less and you trust more. A season with reduced fear and enhanced faith. Can you imagine a life in which you are anxious for nothing? God can, and with his help, you can also experience it. Congratulations. Are you ready for teen choir? I don't know if I can dismiss you just yet. What's our time, Barb? Are, can they just go out early? Is that fine? Please make sure if you have an exit slip to hand it to Erwin and Emily or Mike in the back. I'm here too.